everyone. We are reading from Mark chapter 6, starting from verses 1. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What is the wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offence at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honour except in his own town, among his relatives and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around, teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. He began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had been had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah. And others, and still others claimed, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to, because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried in to the king with the request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went and beheaded John in the prison and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb.
keep the conversation going uh, over a cupcake, stay a bit longer today uh, and get to know each other a bit more with a cup of coffee and a cupcake on our seventh birthday. Um, do have your Bible open to Mark 6, we'll walk through this passage today. Last week, just as a, a quick recap, we saw that the shape of the kingdom of God is trusting God's timing and agenda with our life. If you weren't here last week, do have a listen about God's timing, God's agenda and what that means for us. We saw the bleeding woman and the 12-year-old girl who had died, Jairus' daughter. Well, today continues this idea of faithfulness and trust in our Lord Jesus. As we learn not only what it looks to live under God's timing and with God's agenda, but how we trust, sorry, how we are a faithful witness to him as well. So how does it, what does it look like to be a faithful witness to Jesus? And today I hope to bring you good news about that, as it says. Good news about being a faithful witness. The thing about this is being faithful to Jesus looks the same for everyone, but is different for each of you. So that again, being faithful to Jesus looks the same for everyone, but is different for each of you. What do I mean? Well, each of you have been assigned different circumstances under God, by God, in which you are to live as his holy people. And as different, uh, and, and as different in our lives are, we're called to be faithful in that sphere of influence with the mission of God that we have, right? And my life is different to yours, yours different to mine, but under God we are faithful in those spheres. Announcing the kingdom of God has come near to all those around us. That's the big idea in Mark 6. Let's be a faithful witness to Jesus. Now Mark's aware of the diverse response Jesus brings out in people as well. And so what he's doing is not just claiming let's be faithful, but he's actually very aware of how hard life can be at times. We see an indifference to Jesus when Jesus goes home. We see success from the disciples of Jesus, and then we see severe hostility with John the Baptist being killed for his faith in Jesus. And as we think about this and, and mission and our sphere of influence and in our workplaces, a very important distinction needs to be made right here as we start. Please hear this. I don't want to make you feel bad about the week you had because you didn't talk about Jesus. That's not the intent. After all, you are making decisions every day about what will happen if you do. Because each of you in your workplaces face pressures about faith in your workplace. And the very real reality that your job can be on the line for being a Christian. And that people are suspicious about a Christian ethic. And so there is a wisdom call that you're making all the time. And so I'm not unaware of that. And I don't want to beat you up for not doing it well enough. But maybe you're here and you say, well, my work days are behind me. Well, don't forget, you still have a sphere of influence too. What does it look like to be faithful with Jesus to your kids and grandkids or the folks in the retirement home? So, I want you to use today as a faithfulness checkup, not on last week, but going forward, so that you are ready for whatever comes your way in all the weeks and months and years ahead. Ready not just to share Jesus under God as that opportunity happens, but to act Christianly in tricky situations. Steve McAlpine is an Australian author and pastor, and he wrote a book called Being the Bad Guys. Maybe you've read it. I do recommend it. And he reminds us from the story of Daniel in the Old Testament that we need to make sure that faithfulness is locked away long before the edict of the king comes because you cannot take out of the bank what you have not put in. 
His point is saying, before you get to the office door, before you open your laptop for the Zoom call tomorrow morning, have you resolved to be a Christian in that space? Is the value and glory of God shaping your response to your workplace and your family and your friends? And is that more valuable than what your boss thinks? Is King Jesus central to who you are? Because fidelity to him shapes a loving, humble, gracious response and it creates in us a good fear of God and not people. So, let's do a faithfulness checkup. Are we ready to go into Monday morning as a Christian? So let's walk through the text and then I'll end with three ways that I think we can be faithful on Monday morning. So first thing we see is this rejection of Jesus. The first six verses. Jim was given a Bible in, in year 12 from a Christian friend. They had many chats in high school about Jesus and while Jim was curious, nothing was quite compelling. Yet for some reason, Jim kept that Bible for 17 years. And as time went on after high school, these two separated. Jim worked in an office job. He became a manager. He dated a little and he recently got married and started a family. Jim was living what it looked like a typical Aussie life. But things were anything from happy or joyful. Life at home was rough. He was a difficult person at times to be around. His job was painfully dull, painfully dull, in fact. And two young kids under two, adult responsibilities was just huge. And one day, he found that Bible a friend gave him and he started reading it. And he knew his grandmother went to church. And over a year, he went to church maybe twice and read maybe three pages of that Bible. But it got him thinking. And one day, by the sovereignty of God, he got a message, a text message from the person who gave him that Bible. Out of the blue, he hadn't spoken for 17 years. And it suddenly sparked this frenzy of coffees and chats. And very quickly, Jim gave his life to Jesus. His new faith began to change him instantly. A joy and a hunger for God, fueled by the grace of God he had tasted and received, was affecting how he worked, how he treated his kids and his wife. Suddenly, this Jim was more calm and patient. He was gracious and eager to show the love of God that he now knew to his family and wife and his workmates. Except, his wife wasn't happy. The man she knew and married was changing, all because of Jesus. And she took deep offence at him and at his God. Jim found himself in a similar situation to what Jesus does in Mark 6. Jesus is in his hometown with people that knew him from childhood. People that knew him as the carpenter's son. He got his apprenticeship with them, right? And while some were amazed, a bigger chunk took great offence. You see, the one place that should have known him the best couldn't get over how ordinary and basic Jesus was. And their questions continue with theme we've seen in Mark over and over again, people's blindness to Jesus, who is Jesus? And so they say in verse 2 and 3, where did this man get these things? And didn't Meredith do a great job with the boxes? The kids were intrigued. But where did he get these things? What's the, what wisdom has been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles? Isn't this Mary's son, the brother of James and Joseph, and, and these are his sisters with us? And... and they took offence. All they saw was Jesus as your average tradie walking through Bunnings, getting a sausage and nothing more. That was it. It seemed totally ridiculous that the boy who grew up in their midst would be a prophet, let alone God's promised Messiah. It's ludicrous. Jesus didn't fit their box. They're so aware of his humanity, they cannot fathom his deity. And so much so they take offence that he'd be anything else. Now, this is stubborn unbelief at its finest. 
Stubborn unbelief. Um, doubt has trouble believing, right? You want to believe, but it's hard. And, but unbelief just refuses to believe. If you're doubting, you can doubt yourself to belief, but unbelief runs the other way on purpose. And so why there is nothing, in one sense, as Isaiah says, nothing beautiful or majestic to attract us to Jesus, it's a tragedy just to see him as a human. And on our seventh birthday today, let us not be like the gathering in Mark 6 in that synagogue as a church who say, I already know about Jesus, I've got him figured, he's in this box in my life. Let's be amazed at the humanity of Jesus the relatability of Jesus to us, but stand in awe that behind the hammer and the dusty nails is the Son of God calling us to repent and believe in Him. Let us be amazed at Jesus because what you don't want is verse 6, for Jesus to be amazed at them because of a lack of faith. Jesus knows the prophets in the Old Testament were rejected by God's people and so too is He. Yet like the prophets who were called to preach and teach and call God's people back to God, so Jesus does that. He comes willingly to his home. Did you get that? And then he still preaches, teaches, heals, casts out demons in that hometown, even though he can't do much. They are without excuse. He is still there present. In fact, in the face of deep unbelief, Jesus was inclusive. He had time for them when they had no time for him. You know, Jim knows that what his wife thinks of Jesus is like those in Mark 6. And each day, he seeks to love and care for her with his faith informing his actions, motivating him to love her like Jesus loves him. Maybe you can relate to Jim and his situation. But it's not just Jesus traveling around. Um, He then sends his followers. He gets a, a terrible reception, so he sends them out to the surrounding communities. But notice how different their reception is to Jesus. And while these words of Jesus are not a method for mission and ministry today, they establish key ideas about what being faithful looks like. So look at 7 to 13 and then verse 30. First thing we see is that these 12 are sent under the authority of Jesus. In verse 7, he sends them, he calls to them, he sends them out under him. And their mission is an extension of what he's doing, right? Verse 12 and 13, they preach repentance, drive out demons, heal the sick. Under God, in our sphere of life, we are sent under the authority of Jesus. That's still the same today. And when they go, did they go alone? No, they went in pairs. Mission happens together. You can't do it on your own. Jesus has called us to work for his kingdom together. And I thought a faithfulness checkup here would say, how do you prepare well for your workplace? Is that, are you concerned um, about praying for others who are Christians who can share the burden of workplace life? I don't know what it's like to be an engineer, but I reckon 10 of you in this room do. And I don't know what it's like to be a nurse, but I reckon 8 of you in this room do, or a teacher, but the people that are here know. They know the pressure and challenges that you face every day. And isn't that great? Under God, you have others together that know the challenges and we can pray and work together in this. And yes, it might feel dull and your job might be totally boring and isolating, but Jesus is interested in us being together on his mission. Even when you're alone, 
there are others who can pray with you and for you, just like these 12 go out. But then not only that, we're encouraged to see a bigger picture. Jesus sending his followers is a new sort of exodus. You know, it's funny he tells them to bring four things. Did you pick that? Don't, don't bring a change of clothes. Just bring a staff, sandals, belt, and one shirt. Don't take extras. That's exactly what God told the Israelites to take when they left Egypt. And just as they left Egypt, when judgment struck Egypt, so to the twelve are to leave a house and shake the dust from their feet as a sign of judgment if those people reject Jesus too. And so suddenly we see this symbolicness of the past as God is helping his people see he's doing something new in Jesus, in and through Jesus, and part of this is that God is now sending his people out. And by the grace of God, they have success. In verse 30, they report back to Jesus all the things that they had done. And they're pretty chuffed, right? They, they had a great, they had a great uh, time of ministry. But as, as they are celebrating, uh, the reputation of Jesus increases in verse 14. He's becoming more well-known but less understood. Some think he's Elijah, it says. Some think he's a prophet. And King Herod... Well, he thinks he's John the Baptist resurrected from the dead. And then Mark pauses, right, to tell us why Herod thinks that. Why does Herod think John the Baptist is resurrected from the dead? And this whole narrative, this pause, fits exactly with what we've seen. How are God's people received? Because sometimes it looks like the bad guys win, doesn't it? The bad guys win, the good guys lose. That looks like John the Baptist. Now, we know that Jesus can't lose, but the trouble is, it doesn't always look that way and seem that way to God's people, and maybe you know that very well. You know, I have faith in God, he has saved me, one day things are going to be great, he's going to restore everything, and sin will be gone, no tears, but right now, it doesn't feel like the good guys are making any headway. Because John felt that way too. So this is the last part. John finds himself in prison for being faithful to Jesus. John was a good guy. He was one of the best in the entire Bible. He would get the tick. If you had to, Jesus even says, of all the people ever born, none is greater than John the Baptist. He was a great human, if you can say that. In fact, even selfish, tricky, cowardly Herod knew he was righteous and holy. That's why he kept him in prison to languish. He didn't want to kill him. He was intrigued, but he didn't know what to do with him. But as John's about to find out, sometimes in life the good guys finish last. John said to Herod, you can't marry your brother's wife, but he did. Herod's new wife, Herod, Herod, Herodias, does not like this. In fact, the conflict between Herod and his brother creates a war from this new marriage, and it's a horrible family mess, and John is speaking into that. So he gets locked up, and John struggled with that. He was just being faithful to God, now he's in prison. That was not part of his plan. He knew he was the messenger going before God, but he didn't read in the job description footnote 3 that he was going to go to prison. He'd missed that. And he could not see how that was part of God's plan either. And if you look in Matthew's account of this and Luke's, there's this little extra section where John says, disciples of mine, go and see if Jesus really is the Messiah because it certainly doesn't look like it. And you know that, doesn't, isn't it? When life is hard like that, it, Jesus doesn't look like the Saviour. And then here's what Jesus says to John in prison, languishing. Um, Jesus says to John, John, 
the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. That's what he says back to John in prison. What is he saying? The kingdom is advancing, even when you're in jail. And John, your concern isn't your position in life or what I'm doing with others, like the blind receiving sight. Uh, blind receiving sight. I've got you on your own path and your own journey. Be faithful to me where I've put you. Be content with how I've used you. Do not stumble because others flourish and you languish. We belong to a kingdom, John, that isn't about taking the hill and having your best life now. I am the promised one. Look at who I am and what I'm doing. Trust me with your life. Entrust your life to the hands of your faithful God, John, because this counts for more than you can imagine. Even when you're tossed around by people of the world, God is in control. Like a very inappropriate party in which Herod's niece dances provocatively, he then says, I'll give you anything you want, and then John dies because Herodias takes her opportunity. And then it ends with John's disciples laying him in a tomb and it looks like the bad guys won. But consider this, John is so unique at a unique time because he always goes before Jesus, doesn't he? He was born first, he announces the kingdom of God first, he dies at the hands of evil men first and he's laid in a tomb first and all that happens to Jesus. And while John died because of the sins of others, Jesus died for the sins of others. So that the good guys won't lose in the end. One day God's enemies will not reign victoriously. One day death itself will die, you see. Which means to think about John's life, the disciple's success and Jesus' reception in his hometown is a great opportunity for us to do a faithfulness checkup to. To trust where God is leading us as we witness to him in all the places we go. So let me conclude with three thoughts on how you can be or could be a faithful witness this week. And I hope it's encouraging. Firstly, don't forget that you live faithful because Jesus was faithful for you. He went to the cross to secure our forgiveness, new life, grace and forgiveness. He has been and is more faithful than you will ever be and that takes the pressure off. As both John and the Twelve realised, you need him, his authority, his faithfulness wherever you go in your situation, in your sphere of life. As much as your workmates who don't know Jesus need him, you need him too. Which means, I can live faithfully because I have a faithful saviour. And the pressure's off. And that's so good. Don't forget that. Secondly, I can live faithfully because of the authority of Jesus. They were sent out under the authority of Jesus and so are we. Matthew in the Great Commission sends his disciples out and he says all authority has been given to me go under that authority and what that does is actually give us a humbling confidence knowing that Jesus has authority should never give you a self-righteous arrogant mindset it should cause you to be a faithful witness loving, serving caring, reaching to the least, last and the lost working quietly faithful in your job, more focused on spiritual permeation of those around you than on anything else. Treating people with patience, taking on clients in your workplace. No one else would, regardless of who they are or what they believe or how their lifestyle is, 
and working faithfully at home because everything comes under the lordship of Jesus. His authority moves our fear to the right place, off of of others onto God, and I rest under him. And lastly, I can live faithful because of the hope of Jesus' empty tomb. You see, John's story didn't end in a tomb and neither does ours. And yes, years later, Jesus is placed in a tomb. But what happened, which we'll remember on Easter Sunday, three days, he rose from the dead. And while it looked like John's story and Jesus' story didn't go the way they or God had planned when they had died, and ours might have a tinge of that too, that your story doesn't look anything like you've planned, as Christians, our story does not end with the grave. After death, John received his reward. That's our hope too. Jesus came into the world to save sinners and you cannot control how people will react to that message. But you can decide how you'll react to the Jesus we see here. And you can resolve to be faithful and winsome in your workplaces and family all the days of your life until we hear those words of Jesus which he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Let me pray for our resolve to be faithful because of his faithfulness for us. Our great God, our hope in life and death is you. And we don't go alone, we go with you in all our places. And while it's hard, daunting, scary, fearful and unsure at times, you are the sure hope that we need. Father God, give us a resolve to be faithful to you because you're faithful to us. Forgive us our sins so we can forgive those who sin against us. Help us to follow where you're leading and to take heart that you will win, you have overcome and that that's a great humbling experience. In your name we pray and commit our week ahead to you. Amen.